Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start this episode with a message from Engaza, a prisoner in the IDOC system who describes recent unfair changes in prison correspondence and what people on both the inside and outside are trying to do about it. As you all may be aware by now, back on April the 1st of this year, the Indiana Department of Correction implemented their Executive Directive 17-13, which disallowed incoming prisoners' correspondence with colored envelopes, colored paper, greeting cards, uh, computer-printed photos, type letters that were computer-generated, and news clippings. They claimed that this was necessary to impede the introduction of narcotics and synthetic narcotics by way of the United States Postal Service into its facilities. Yet this repressive move on their part has brought with it the denial of prisoners' constitutional rights of freedom of association. And in a memo dated June the 20th of this year, from Rich Larson, the public info officer here at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, he replied to the request for statistical data that supported the IDOC officials' claim that prisoners were attempting to utilize the United States Postal Service to smuggle narcotics or synthetic narcotics with the following statement. According to the Wabash Valley Office of Investigation and Intelligence, OII, we do not keep records of drugs entering the facility through the United States Postal Service, nor does the OII have reports detailing the number of incidents involving narcotics and or synthetic narcotics sent to prisons via the United States Postal Service. The OII does not have reports identifying the number of prisoners prosecuted for doing so. Based on this document, it is safe for us to conclude that despite the fact that there is no concrete data documenting, documenting prisoners' attempt to smuggle these narcotics through the incoming mail, IDOC officials have chosen to impose on us this arbitrary denial of our constitutional rights to freely associate with our, friend, our family, friends, and loved ones. Now, let us take a step back for a moment and consider this fact. Now that prisoners in our family friends and loved ones, can no longer utilize the United States Postal Service to maintain some sense of connection, we must all now rely on the JPay services and email systems to send and receive photos, type letters, and greeting cards. JPay, a private, a, a private corporation, of course charges us a small fee for the privilege of utilizing that system and with the deal with the Indiana, Indiana Department of Correction Executive Director 17-13 can now expect to see huge profits thanks to the repressed actions of the Indiana Department of Correction officials. People, it doesn't take a rocket science to see through what has happened here. Once again, state officials have used their power to blatantly exploit prisoners and our loved ones, believing we are powerless to resist these wicked, corrupt state officials see no harm in stomping on the boogeyman's toe because who in the hell really cares about the boogeyman? Those of us incarcerated are society's cast off, and society is taught to fear us, and
fear has bred a lack of sympathy necessary for our naked oppression and exploitation. Yet, society beware, for the boogeyman who lurks in the dark exists only because those in power turned out the lights and created the darkness in the first place. I now urge all of you to not just simply launch another calling campaign, but to utilize every resource available to you to expose what is happening here. Reach out on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and all those other social media sites to everyone you know and urge them to call out those these state officials and expose their bull****. Thank you once again, and I look forward to working with you on this issue and the many, many more affecting prisoners that desperately need to be addressed here in the state of Indiana as well as all over the nation. The voices you'll hear in this program are students in a college course that brings incarcerated and non-incarcerated students together in the classroom. It's a course in the National Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. This one, a history class bridging Indiana University Bloomington and the Indiana Women's Prison, taught by Professor Mikul Siegel from the American Studies Department at Indiana University. This audio comes from a collaborative project where students were prompted to further investigate a topic of their choice. These students chose to discuss the social collateral consequences of incarceration. Hi, I'm Jennifer, and our group is here to talk to you about social collateral consequences of having a criminal conviction. And the members of our group are... Ayana, Caro, Jasmine, Lori, and I'm Michelle. Let's start with talking a little bit about what are the differences between legal collateral consequences and social collateral consequences. Legal collateral consequences are permanent or long-term statutory laws or regulations that block full citizenship for the post-incarcerated. It includes ineligibility for some jobs, such as being nurses and lawyers. You're unable to receive public housing, government contracts, pensions, and some welfare benefits. In some states, it includes the right to vote, the right to hold public office or a private trust. You can't even be a public service volunteer. Um, it can also result in the loss of parental rights, the right to travel, live in certain parts of town, or live with family members who happen to be on probation or parole. It also can result in deportation, and you couldn't even be a private detective if you wanted to be. Another aspect of legal collateral consequences is that they're not always related to your underlining charge, and it actually groups people together who are convicted of any crime. So they're applied across the board because they're not assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. So in 2015, the American Bar Association established a website, and they categorized 48,000 laws across the U U.S. that actually affect people who are post-incarcerated. And in Indiana, there's nearly 800. So that basically shows how pervasive legal collateral consequences are. But let's talk a little bit about what social collateral consequences are. They come from legal cons collateral consequences, but they surpass them because of the sheer number of them and the variability and the fact that they are actually targeting individuals. They're not rooted in the law. They stem from everyday social interactions once a person's criminal background is known. This can result in the loss of their personhood and degradation and identity prejudice. You know, people actually feel purposefully held down and it affects the actual, their real livability in everyday life. So what's an example? Women and men who are post-incarcerated 
They can't serve on PTAs. They can't coach their kids' little league games or be memberships in certain home associations. They can't do the neighborhood watch. They Sometimes they can't do carpools. It affects their ability for their kids to even have sleepovers with their friends. Michelle, I am so glad that you brought this point up. I know a man named Denny. He was convicted of a misdemeanor possession of marijuana charge. And his uh, granddaughter's school field trip was to go to the zoo, and he very much so wanted to be able to um, chaperone that trip. However, her school refused him the right to do that for his granddaughter because of his conviction. Um, he was unable to ever volunteer for any school events, and I believe that this is a great example of what those social collateral consequences are. You know, what's interesting about legal collateral consequences is that a lot of times they birth social collateral consequences in the form of like institutions and, um, and other structures like that. But what's difficult to understand is that a lot of times with, with personal narratives or things like that, they're not seen as valid. And those are the evidences for social collateral consequences. Um, and they're not seen as valid because usually personal narratives, personal anecdotes, anecdotal evidence is in the form of stories that, that carry with them this idea of oneness, that like it's just one person's narrative, it's just one person's experience, and that it's not connected in any way to perform to anybody else. Um, but in reality, they're part of a collective experience, um, and they're indicative of like a lot of structural and social institutions that, that oppress people and hold people down. So, for, for example, if one person were to say, I'm hot, that's just one person's experience. But if it's a large group of people in the same room saying that I'm hot, it's not those people's fault. It's something wrong with the AC. An actual example based in reality includes rap music. In rap, a lot of times, there's a lot of mention of police brutality and experiences with lack of money. Sure, it might just be one artist, such as Kendrick or J. Cole, that are saying that. But when it's a large group of rap artists saying the same thing, it's indicative of a social structure. Another reason as to why personal narrative, narratives are not seen as valid um, is because of the register of language that's used. Low register of language is usually used in personal narratives, one, because of a lack of schooling, um, and that's also, that also comes hand in hand with um, low socioeconomic status. So usually people of color speak in low registers in the form of Ebonics. And so that's not seen as valid, and people don't want to listen to that, and a lot of times that's equated to ignorance. But without personal narratives, social collateral consequences are impossible to recognize and be brought to light. Well, I, I think that you bring up a very valid point. I mean, if we aren't listening to those personal narratives, we're basically silencing the voice of a group of people. And when we silence the voice of a group of people, history has shown time and time again that um, oppression is able to exist in, in that framework. And so by allowing personal net narratives to come in, we're basically giving a voice to those who otherwise don't have one. But I guess the question now is, why does any of this even matter? The ripple effect doesn't just impact those who are in the direct line of fire. This can impact everybody from neighbors, family members, coworkers, or even just people who watch the news. But one thing you kind of have to ask yourself is, what would you do if your child had a friend and you find out that your child's friend's parent was incarcerated? Would that change the way that you looked at this child? And what if you found out that your child's friend, their parent was post-incarcerated and the child lives with their parent now? Would you allow your child to go over to their house and play? Lori, I am so glad that you um, have touched on that aspect of things. I know a child named Christian 
He was about 13 years old and his best friend, um, of course it was his best friend, so he wanted to be able to share with him the things that he had experienced in life and the things that he was going through with his family. And so he opened up to his best friend and shared with his friend that his mom was a former addict and that she had had experienced some legal troubles. And then of course, um, Christian's best friend went and shared with his mother what Christian had shared with him. And his mother then refused to allow him to spend the night over at Christian's house, um, stating that those people never change and they always go back to doing what they've done and would not allow him to spend the night over at Christian's house. Christian's best friend then expressed that to Christian and it changed the dynamic of their relationship based off of a judgment that one mom was placing against another mom. That's a really important thing to think about and the way that they interact. Um, but another important thing, thing to think about with um, children of incarcerated parents is the types of educational exclusion that happen to them. There are a bunch of different examples of them. One of the ways that they often get excluded is socially in school. So like the example that you gave of Christian, like they're often um, teased or ostracized by other children as a result of their parents' incarceration, which makes it hard to like build social bonds and to have a community. But then there are also other examples that show that 50% of kids who have incarcerated parents have poor grades or they have behavioral issues. So I think there's a lot to think about um, when we're thinking about children of incarcerated parents. They also have a tendency to drop out of high school, which often that perpetuates the poverty and the um, need that often led to their parents' incarceration by dropping out of high school. Um, so it's like a vicious cycle that happens. But another aspect of educational exclusion is when folks who were incarcerated tried to pursue higher education after being released, and they often get um, shut out of higher education institutes and um, are not allowed to receive their education despite having high qualifications or degrees from other institutions. Oh, you are so right about that. Um, I know this lady named Donna who had been released from prison, um, had done all of her time, served all of her parole, did everything that was required of her. And then she went to an institution or a university and applied for enrollment and basically was declined that enrollment, not, not because she couldn't get into the school. The sociology department had completely accepted her. Um, they, they refused to allow her admission because the school did not want to finance her insurance so that she would be able to do her clinicals. Here this woman has done everything that society says that she has to do in order to be reiterated into society. She's paid her debt, but yet her debt continues on and she's being deprived an educational experience. So, you know, it makes me think about how that results into like a social social network fragmentation. I mean, you think about people in prison, getting out of prison and feeling like you said, their debt to society was is paid. But what often happens is that they re-enter the larger society and there is a big disconnect. These social collateral consequences affect their ability to build connections and viable relationships. And as Carol was saying, it affects the, the children in a, in a particular way with stigmatization, poor health outcomes, poor school performance, and 75% of those kids are likely to become incarcerated. But for the incarcerated person themselves, it's really pervasive in their inability to build a secure network that leads to housing, 
employment, and particularly for those suffering mental illness, a network of people to help them deal with it. And it also results in their lack of civic engagement. These people, you know, and me, I can speak personally from my own experience, I have developed a distrust for my government. And I've developed, uh, and, and for how that plays out for some people, is that if they can vote, they don't. If they can get involved civically and uh, decision makings in their communities, they don't. So it builds a, like a generational government distrust and that social network fragmentation is at the heart of. And even on another level, you know, it results in shortened life expectancy and identity prejudice and low self-esteem that is pervasive in every way because we've got to remember social collateral consequences are about those individual interactions. They're all about meeting people in our day-to-day -day experiences and being distrusted, being degraded, receiving a loss of personhood because you have they know your criminal background. And lastly, you know, it, it affects our ability to grow wealth and obtain self-sufficiency. So this is a really big issue, a lot more pervasive than I think a lot of people really understand. I, I totally agree with you, Michelle, and I think that our family structures, you know, they're the heart and the core of what keeps us grounded in society. And so there was this elderly man who had been in and out of prison for the good duration of his adult life. He had an adult child, female, who had a son. And so when he had gotten out of incarceration um, at one point in time when he thought, okay, I'm done, I'm not, I'm not going back, I'm going to change my lifestyle, and put forth the effort to do everything that he needed to do to change his life. He was living with his daughter and his grandson, and his grandson, due to the fact that he was not involved in his life, really wasn't open to receiving anything from him. And so he was at that point in his life where he was ready to, to share the knowledge that he'd learned throughout life and to pass down tradition. Uh, and the grandson was completely closed off to him, was extraordinarily disrespectful, and really didn't want anything to do with any knowledge or wisdom that his grandfather had for him. The man found it so discouraging to the point that he started reflecting on the respect that he earned in prison, that the younger generation within the prison um, showed him respect and would listen to him and be open to hearing the different ways in which they should behave. And he felt he had more to offer to young men within the prison than he did to his own grandson and ultimately made the choice to go out and commit another crime just so that he could finish his days out in prison. Wow, that's amazing. Another thing that we have to look at, though, is how the media can portray people and how this affects in the long term how we look at people who have a criminal label. One problem is it used to be that the news was to inform the public of what was going on. I believe that that can only happen whenever there's no agenda whatsoever. The problem with that though is that's not the way our world works. So in order for somebody to produce a show that's going to continue on from one season to another, they have to make a profit. The news is no different. So in order for the news to generate a profit, they have to get ratings. Well, the only way you can get ratings by everyday, day-to-day -day news is by making something sensationalized. By sensationalized something, you create buzzwords. You create things like the black criminal, the crack baby, the meth head. All these images are created and then fed to the media. And so what we do is when we're being fed something, that's what grows inside of us. So when we're out in the public and we're out in the world and we hear these things or we see what we think fits a certain profile, we do profile it and then we judge based on those profiles. So when these things are fed to us, they become a part of our society.
So then we start fragmenting within ourselves and we start judging. It also makes us feel better about ourselves, but whenever you create dissension, you're not gonna be a united people. If you're not a united people, there's no way you're gonna be able to move on. If we don't take these things serious and if we're not able to keep moving forward, then we're just gonna keep perpetuating them. Then you end up down the road with things, uh, somebody gets out of prison, they can't find a job. How are they gonna be able to feed their children? Things that a lot of people don't think of is women who are incarcerated are typically the primary parent. If they are the primary parent and they can't find a job, how are they gonna support their children? Even if they only have a low level felony, once you get that criminal taint, it is so hard to find a job and to find legal work. If you can't find legal work and you can't feed your children, what is your next course of action? Even if you've done all the programs and rehabilitated yourself and that's not the life you want anymore, if you feel like you're up against a wall and it's your kid's hungry belly that's against you, you might turn where you don't want to. This is so true, Lori, and another aspect that is when there's no primary care provider for the children in the home, then the children sometimes end up in foster care. And let's say there's two or three children, um, a lot of times they'll be split up and separated and won't even be allowed to see each other. So not only have they lost their parent, but they've also lost their siblings. And this is the children paying a consequence for what the parent has done. It has nothing really to do with them having broke a law or any wrong of their own. They are just basically a helpless victim that is stuck in a circumstance that is beyond their control. Even though I feel social collateral consequences are very disheartening, there are still uh, organizations out there trying to uh, help out and to extinguish this problem, this structural problem within our society. One of which, when you bring up mothers and children, is Angel Wings, which is in Indianapolis. And they provide care for uh, women who are in prison. The history is basically uh, there is a 19-year-old who was going to prison and she didn't have anyone to take care of her child. And then someone named uh, Wendy was able to help out. And then she realized that many women in prison need this type of care. And it's like a alternative placement for children so that it also helps the taxpayer out and it helps reduce recidivism because it provides good care for children, mentors, mother, mothers in prison, allows mothers to have this uh, connection with their children whenever if they're born within the prison or if they have visits. You know what, Ayana, I'm glad you brought Angel Wings up. That is my boss. And she is absolutely amazing. She is an awesome fundraiser. She has basically enlivened this entire facility with the programs in which she has brought in. She brought the We Once program for, from a very small experience to a very nationally recognized program. And our family preservation summer camps and our camps for uh, teenagers have totally transformed in their scope they offer more activities for their kids um, every year. The fundraising involved in providing meals and activities and fun stuff for the kids to do on those visits. She handles all that, and she's just an amazing woman. And her work extends well throughout. Uh, her work extends throughout this facility, out into. She takes her activism to her to the University of Indianapolis, where she works, and out across the country. Um, it's an amazing program, and Angel Wings is the backbone of this facility's family preservation program. 
There's another organization out there too in Indianapolis called Trusted Mentors. And it's a mentoring agency for adults, for people in and coming out of prison. And it helps a lot with homelessness prevention and successful successful reentry. And they have volunteer adults to help mentor people within the prison to uh, empower them to remain housed and make positive contributions to their local community and to help provide uh, or help people look for stable employment and to help empower them to stay in that employment. And they also help advance education. People can come into contact with them to either volunteer or donate or to even just write and congratulate people through the uh, website trustedmentors.org and there's like a page on there that has volunteer and donate on it as well. There's a group called Churches Embracing Offenders and I was wondering if Lori could talk to us a little bit about that. Remember we were talking about it before. Sure. Basically, the idea behind Churches Embracing Offenders is the number of churches in Indiana is larger than the number of offenders being released out into the public every year. So basically, the idea is if each church were to embrace one person who's being released from prison, then they would be able to help an entire, help all the people being released reintegrate back into society easier. And each church is able to decide how much they're willing to help somebody. It also depends on what kind of help that person requires when they're being released. Some people have support and don't require as much assistance. Other people, they don't have any family. They don't have any transportation. They don't, they don't even really have clothes on their back when they're released except what the prison gives them. You could be released in summer with a pair of sweatpants. This program is designed to kind of be tailor-made to each person who's being released. And some of the things that they focus on, I remember reading, is strengthening the family, helping with alcohol abuse, assisting with altering, you know, non-productive thinking and like different groups such as that. And then here in Bloomington, there are two things that I would like to talk about. One called Midwest Pages to Prisoners, and it sends books and other literature, literature to people that are incarcerated. The project exists to alleviate a lot of the pain caused by the criminal justice system and to provide a, di a direct opportunity for self-education and collective struggle. They provide books, but they also have pen pals as well for people who would really like to go back and forth correspondence. Uh, they need regular, dedicated volunteers to respond to letters and fulfill book requests. They have an orientation that is every Sunday at 1030, and it's only about 45 minutes, and it's at a place here called Boxcar Books. Another interesting project that started at the Indian Women's Prison is called Constructing Our Future. Constructing Our Future recently received approval by the Indiana General Assembly last week, and it was a really big coup for um, the NN Women's Prison. But it was based on a project in which uh, one of the ladies here developed an idea of how to provide women leaving prison with a home and employment immediately upon release. And the project basically teaches women basic building trade skills in addition to a rehabilitation component. And they actually help women coming out of prison refab houses so that they can actually earn one for themselves. And upon the completion of the program, which starts two years while you're incarcerated and follows you two years after, you actually earn a house through the refurbishment of other homes. Um, it's a unique opportunity 
for women coming out of prison to build community with the neighborhoods in which they're going into. And basically, there's money out there and over 4,000 blighted homes in the, in the state of Indiana. So this program has the ability to have a, a huge extensive reach throughout the state of Indiana and actually to provide women with an actual home, which is one of the key reasons why people recidivate. Employment and housing are two of the biggest issues that reentering women face. And our program called Constructing Our Future, which was recently, a resolution was passed by the Indiana General Assembly, and also approved and sanctioned by our commissioner is underway. Now, how long it'll take before it's actually implemented as a program right here at the Indiana Women's Prison, we've yet to know, but at least we know that we've galvanized support for our program. We just want to reiterate the, that social consequence, social collateral consequences are really important things for us to think about when we're thinking about um, working with people who are incarcerated or thinking about the challenges that they face. And it's not simply legal ones like trying to navigate child custody laws, those kinds of things. It's much more complex because of the ways that we have social interactions and the ways that those are stigmatized if you're an, a person who is incarcerated or post-incarcerated. We'd also like to thank our two group members who weren't able to be here with us, Crystal and Addison. They both contributed to this group, but unfortunately could not record with us. Thank you for listening. A list of the organizations being mentioned and their contact information is available on the KiteLine website. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities.